Yeah, my name is Jake Johnson. If I've not met you, I would love to afterwards. I see a few new faces, which is awesome. So welcome to The Bridge. Uh, the Bridge is a gathering of 18 to 20-somethings. Uh, we used to be like 18 to 22, right in that college age. But this January, we said, you know what? We're going to extend the fun. And so college, young adults, you're all welcome. We love to have you. So invite your friends, invite your older brother, your younger brother, whoever, or sister, and, uh, and invite them. Because we're going to be going through the book of First Peter uh, for, for this semester. Last week, we, we made it one verse. We made it one verse, like one and a half. Well, we're going to finish that half verse, so we're just going to, to verse two tonight, all right? And we've got the whole semester. I'm not worried about, about speed here. And, and I love this book as I've gotten to study it more. And, and we're taking this study slow, and the reason we're doing this is because everything Peter has to say is extremely important. He's going to use some big words, right? Last week we talked about election, that he, they were elect exiles or, or chosen sojourners, aliens, and, and we kind of broke down what that meant and what God was doing in saving a people for himself from before the foundation of the world with this plan. And, and so we broke that down, and, and we're going to continue breaking down what Peter is really doing in just his introduction, isn't that kind of crazy? I mean, you know, when we start our letters, we're like, what's up? We don't even do letters. We just text. Uh, we don't really have such weighty things. But, but what Peter is doing is establishing an identity uh, to the people that he is communicating with. He's saying, remember that God has chosen you, and therefore, because you've been chosen by God to be saved out of this world, that you're different from this world, that you ought to be set apart, and, and as a result, you're exiles. You don't fully belong here. Your homeland is in heaven. Remember Philippians 3.20, your citizenship is in heaven. And so, yes, we are in this world, but we're not living for it. We're not trying to accumulate the prizes that this world offers, but we have a different purpose altogether as believers. And so right off the bat, he's, he's building this communication that he's going to extend through the rest of his letter. And so tonight... We're going to talk more uh, about what God is doing in saving a people for himself. And, and, not, and when I say God, I don't mean just the Father that, that has the plan, but even more than that. So read with me the first two verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Now, I'm not going to break down everything that we talked about last week. If you uh, weren't able to make it or you just want a refresher, uh, you can check that out on a few places. Uh, what would that be? YouTube? Are we on YouTube? Well, yes, we are on YouTube. Probably The Bridge. Did, at Denton Bible Church, something like that. You can go to Spotify over the summer. This is a this is a humble brag, but we got rated the number five podcast in Denton, Texas. So, shout out to you guys. Now, this that's this is to you. This is to you because you guys are binging that stuff. Uh, but go listen to it, all right, and and just soak it all up. Put me at one point five speed. I'm probably better that way, and and you can be refreshed on what we talked about last week. But we're gonna keep moving uh, for the sake of time. So you are chosen by God for salvation 
That's the, the initial part that we talked about. But you're going to notice three very important people at work in verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Uh, this is what we call the triune God, the Trinity. Maybe you've heard about the Trinity before. Um, a lot of people say, yeah, the Trinity doesn't exist. The Trinity, the word Trinity, is not in the Bible. Uh, and that's true, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but that is just a man-made term that we use to very quickly talk about God, who is triune. And you're like, well, that is just kind of a crazy thing. How do I wrap my brain around it? Well, we've got a definition up here for you, I think, maybe, possibly. Um, see, I'm looking at the time thing. The clock's not there, so maybe not. If it's, is it there now? See, it threw me off. There's usually sometimes, th there it is. See, some, uh, this is, all cards are off here. I don't have anything memorized. I just read it from there. But sometimes I look like I'm trying to remember, but I'm just reading it. This is a definition for the, for the Trinity, all right? Uh, we're just being vulnerable here, okay? The one true God. Is there only one God? Yes. One God. The one true God eternally exists as three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. So how does that work? Well, they are all one in nature. Their divine nature, they, they share that nature. None of them are less in nature, less God or more of God. They all share one in nature. They are equal in glory. So we say, when we say praise God, we can equally praise any of them, right? It's not blasphemous to praise Jesus. It's not blasphemous to praise the Spirit or the Father that we can worship all of them because they are all God. And yet, they are distinct in relations, that they're distinct human beings, not human beings, they're distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now we can't break down all of that in, in all of the Trinity, but what we are going to see tonight is how the Trinity is responsible for certain aspects of our salvation. So I want to break down each of the tasks that are accomplished by each member of the Trinity. The first one that we see, and we talked about this a little bit last week, but the foreknowledge of God the Father. The foreknowledge of God the Father. He has the plan, all right? He is, he is the one with the plan. Foreknowledge just means knowledge beforehand, okay? Before the foundation of the world, says Ephesians. That God had a plan before he even created the world, and he says, it's gonna go this way. And because God is sovereign and he is wise, everything is going according to plan. God is not on plan B, C, D, E, F, Z, okay? He's not just pivoting in the moment and being like, oh, this is not really working out. This guy is struggling. So let me change this whole thing. No, 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 God knew. God knew it's all according to God's plan. So whatever is going on in your life, he knows it's coming. Does that mean God is the author and the immediate cause of evil and sin in the world? No. Man is still culpable. We're still responsible for the things that are done. Adam and Eve are still responsible for the things that they've done. Did God, does God allow things to happen that may not go with what his ultimate desire would be? Yes, 
We would not say that, that God just allowed the serpent into the garden and God says, whoa, I had no idea he snuck in here. We know, right? We know that God allowed the serpent in there to, to tempt or to test Adam and Eve. Why? Well, because if they were never presented another option, then their worship never would have been genuine. And their love for God and their obedience to him would never have been genuine in real love. It would have just been robotic. There, it would have been slavery, not service and love. And so God allows things. And when it, the, the world fell as a result of sin, now God is, is working out his cosmic plan, even though sin and death, which are not uh, a delight of his, are in the world. But we know he's going to redeem all that he allows. Which means that our privileges as God's chosen people our adoption into God's family, and even the trials and tribulations that we experience throughout our life are all known by God before it even happens. All things come about according to his knowledge and his foresight, meaning it's going to be okay. Meaning it's going to be okay. God's not caught off guard. God's not surprised even when we are even in our moments of discouragement, when we're not quite sure why God is allowing things, like, why God, why this, why now? Why would you allow these things? Even if you can't understand why you're going through it, I think we can trust who is going to use it, and that's God the Father. Now, I'm not gonna dive too deeply into how God is going to use trials and tribulations because that's next week and just come back next week, but you need to know that God has a plan. God is going to use all these things and redeem all that he allows. So the Father has a plan. We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So the Father has a plan and the Holy Spirit is the source of our sanctification. He's the source of our sanctification in this life. Well, what is sanctification? Great question. Glad you asked it. The root word used in sanctification is, is the same word from holiness. It's, it comes from the same word, holy. Holy means literally to cut. It means to separate, to be distinct from. Uh, a, a funny example of this, uh, does anyone, any of your parents still have fine china? Right, it's like the dishes that are only used for the most, but thank you for hands. That's what I need in my life. I got some nods and I'll appreciate that too. But remember that fine china that was only used for very specific circumstances in your life? This is a very dulled down earthly version of something that's holy. It is set apart from all the other dishes in your, in your life and in your world and in your cabinets. It has, it has been cut away, it has been separated and they have a very specific purpose and use. Okay, you see what I'm, what I'm saying here? They're not ordinary. They have, they're something special and unique. Now, God is holy in multiple senses. God is holy in a moral sense and that he is totally separate from sin. God is not sinful. God is not caught up in the muck and the mire and the, and the emotional selfishness that we exhibit in our day-to-day. -day. He is totally separate from it. But he is also separate from creation in, that the, in the fact that he is creator. So he is a creator. We are the created. So he is he's separated in a lot of ways. But by and large, when you read holiness and you're encouraged to live a holy life, it's talking in the moral and character sense. That we are to be holy as God is holy. 
because of the way that he lives his life, that his character is altogether different than the ways of this world, as the followers of him, we ought to live holy lives. We ought to be separated, that we're not living for the flesh, we're not living for the fame of this world and pleasure on this earth, we're living to please God. We're the fine china that's set away for a specific use, and that's for God, not for this world, not for ourselves. Sanctification is the process of being made holy. It is the process in which we become more and more like Christ in his character, that we are being made holy. It is a a progressive thing that is happening. So holiness is connected to the character and morality of God, and sanctification is all about making something holy. I remember one time we were in Austria on a mission trip. Uh, I'll talk about it a little bit later. You can still apply if you want. And I was with uh, my guys. I think they were 17 or 18, and I was 18, and I was trying not to let them know that I was the same age and leading a Bible study with them. And we were in the trampoline room, and they were very distracted, as you would be in a trampoline room. And uh, we were having this conversation, and sometimes the language barrier is tough. And uh, for whatever reason, in the Bible study, we were trying to talk about sanctification. I was like, how do I even start Like, how do I explain sanctification in English to these guys? And so Google Translate, a friend of all, and we were trying for like three minutes just to get a word out, and we were like, I was like, uh, it's the process of being like holy, and they were like, what are you saying? This is weird, and and, and then all of a sudden, one of the guys goes, oh, and I'm gonna butcher, I don't even know if it's the right word, but to me in that moment from what I remember 10 years ago is, he goes, oh, Heilig Mahon. Heilig Mahon, and they were all like, oh, Heilig Mahon, and I was like, what is happening? Why are you guys just all saying that? But they were nodding, uh, and, and then one of the guys kind of threw broken English. He goes, holy making, and I said, yeah, yeah, holy making, and we were all nodding, and we're like, we know. We know what we're talking about. Okay, great, and so that's what's happening, that God is making us holy. That's what sanctification is. Now, to get in the weeds a little bit, There's three aspects of sanctification. This is the part we don't talk about, and sometimes you're reading scripture, and you're like, what? This is sanctification? This is sanctification? This is, what is this holy-making process? There's three of them. The first one is positional sanctification or justification. Positional sanctification or justification. What do I mean by that? Well, this happens at the initial moment of our salvation, the initial moment of our salvation uh, when we are freed from the penalty of sin. We're freed from the penalty of sin. Justification uh, literally just means to be declared righteous, to be made right. So this would be kind of a I guess a judicial statement, like a judge uh, at one point in our life, all of us are guilty because of sin. There's no one in this room that is without sin. And as a result, there's no one in this room that has not needed saving. We were all guilty because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we were guilty and therefore deserving of wrath and punishment, but we have been justified. We have been made right in a legal sense before God. Our debt has been paid. We have been separated from sin's punishment And we are now declared righteous by God. So we should have been judged as guilty. But instead, we are declared righteous. 
we are seen as though we're innocent of no wrongdoing. So yeah, that's, that's pretty good news, is it not? That's <laughs> what we call it the gospel. It's really good news. So positional sanctification means our position has changed from guilty to righteous. Our position has changed from sinner to saint, from sinful to holy. There is a positional sanctification that is placed, and we call this justification. Some, there's a lot of great verses on this. You could look them up. I just have one, uh, Romans 5, 1, which says, um, memory, memory, memory. It's a joke because it's going to be up there, right? There it is. Uh, I was getting nervous. Therefore, having been justified by faith, not by your works, not by your church attendance and your more good works than bad works, not really doing anything good in your life. No, no, no. By faith in who Christ is and what he's done on your behalf. We're justified in that way. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand positionally and we celebrate in hope of the glory of God. Three chapters later, Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this is the initial work of sanctification where we are declared righteous, justified. The second piece is progressive or experiential sanctification. This is the one that most of us think about when we think about sanctification, and it's what we experience the most in our life. And that's the gradual work of the Spirit uh, to, to make Christians more like Christ and less like the world. This is the gradual sanctification where we um, are, are looking more like Christ and less like the world. And this happens in our everyday life where the Spirit is guiding us towards uh, maturity, spiritual maturity, and holy living. This process begins on the moment of our salvation until the day we die. Next week, we're going to hear this idea of being born again, where we have a new life in Christ. Um, and also later in, in Peter's letter, he's going to talk about being newborn infants. And he says, hey, long for the pure spiritual milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And what he's not saying is, hey, at some point when you're like 70% matured, then you're saved. No, 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 that's not what he's saying. He's saying, hey, the, the moment of your salvation starts at day one whenever yeah, you confess and forsake your sin and believe upon Christ. It starts there on day one. But you're going to grow in salvation, i.e. progressive sanctification. Now, this book by John Owen, he says, holiness and righteousness is not something that is outside of us that we are trying to acquire or achieve. It is something that is inside of us that we are allowing to take over our lives. It is like a seed that is planted within us and it is growing and growing and growing and taking hold of us more and more as we surrender our lives to the Spirit. It's progressive sanctification. Now, just a, a comment on this that may be helpful. 
at the moment of our salvation, we have been freed from the power of sin. So we have the penalty of sin, we have the power of sin, we have the presence of sin. The moment of our salvation, we have absolutely been freed from the penalty of sin. And that's an amazing thing. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The one that we trip up on is the power of sin. Okay, I think for all of us in experience, we feel sometimes like we're still under the power of sin in our lives. And biblically speaking, that's not true. Sin no longer has power over us. Meaning when you feel this temptation and this tug uh, to walk in your flesh, whether that be lust or anger or pride or gossiping, whatever it is, you're not a slave to that. You don't have to give into it. You can walk away by the power of the Spirit that it doesn't, you're not a slave to sin anymore. Romans 6 is a great study for this. Just read Romans 6. And, and what's cool about Romans 6 is when it talks about sin, it's not just talking about an action that displeases God. It really presents sin as like a master, like a living master. And, and ultimately, one of my seminary professors, it's like when you were saved, God unplugged sin as your master. You can walk away. Well, so then why do I still sin? Why do I have all of this temptation? Because the presence of sin is not gone in this world and you still have what we call flesh, which unfortunately just longs to indulge in pleasure and selfishness that is not pleasing to God. And so Romans 6 is, is, is a great study for this. Um, Romans 6.11 is the first commandment in the entire book of Romans. Think about that. Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, all the way up verse 10, there are no commands from Paul. Not a single one. All he's doing is building a theology of who we are in Christ and what salvation looks like. And the first command he gives is consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Meaning it's this is an act of faith. This is a work that we have to do because we still feel the presence of sin in our lives, but we have to realize, no, 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 I'm dead to sin. Sin's dead to me, so I don't walk in it anymore. He says, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you would obey its lust, but present yourselves to God as members of righteousness. Okay, so this is an act of faith that we have to do day after day after day we still feel this tug of sin, but, but we've been freed from the power of it. We're not forced to give into it any longer, though we still have a flesh that is pulled towards sin. So this is progressive sanctification. A, a great verse that I love on this one, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 hope we have it. <laughs> yeah, we do. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So our sanctification, our holy making, 
happens in large part to our beholding and abiding in God. As we see his glory, as we see his character through his word and through his people, we are encouraged and changed into his character, into his holiness. Do you see that? So it's not like this magical process where it's like, okay, I'm saved now. I'm just going to go do whatever, and I'll just kind of be magically changed. So no, 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 we we got to behold. We need to abide. We need to walk in the Spirit. We need to do all of these things to participate in this work. But it is the Spirit that sanctifies. So we got the first two down. We feel good about those. If not, talk to me later. Positional sanctification, we're justified. Progressive sanctification, we're being made more and more like Christ as time goes on. We'll never be fully perfect uh, in this life. But when we die or when Christ returns, we will have our complete or ultimate sanctification. Our sanctification, praise God, will be complete ultimately. And that is when we will be totally removed from the presence of sin will be totally removed from the presence of sin. We will be uh, separated from sin along with all of its effects, fully sanctified in every regard. This is as the scriptures talk about glorified bodies that we will put on uh, when we are with the Lord and the presence of sin is gone and it's going to be a beautiful time and it's something that we kind of can't comprehend very, very well because all we've known is life in the flesh, right? And it's like, man, I, I'm going to have a day where I'm not jealous and frustrated and, and upset and prideful and gossiping and lusting. Yeah, there will be a day. And praise God, I cannot wait. Um, so all of this is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So you, if you are a believer in Christ, you are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. Um, which means any trial and any tribulation that takes place in our life is being used by the Spirit as a tool to sanctify us. See, that's big. This is going to be a theme in First Peter. See, God, the foreknowledge of the Father, there's nothing that's happening in our lives that he's not going to be using. The Spirit is going to use the trials and tribulations of our lives as a tool to sanctify us. See, this is what Peter is building for his readers. He said, hey, God's, God's aware of your suffering. God's aware of, of the challenges that you face as an exile in this world, as you've been suffering and persecuting and all of those things. God knows what he's doing. So to summarize, the Father plans. The, seer, the Spirit sanctifies. Who are we missing? Jesus, the Son. Verse 2 According to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. We were chosen by the Father to obey Jesus Christ, to be his followers, to be in the flock of which Jesus is our good shepherd. So yes, you were chosen by God the Father to be saved so that you can be in heaven with him forever and ever and ever. And that's an amazing thing. But there is this wrong thinking in this world, and I hope it's going away, but it was very strong in the Bible Belt, and I know because I was an 
absolute card carrier of the Bible Belt through my whole life before I was an actual born-again Christian. And I just said, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. I'm a pretty good person. And I viewed Christianity and belief in God and salvation as... uh, a fire insurance or a get out of a hell free card. And so I just kind of said, yeah, I'm a Christian. I've got this whole thing. I put it in my back pocket. Now let me go live my life. And then, then the whole future when I died, that's, that's good. I got, I'm covered. And I didn't really want Jesus and a relationship with God as a Christian to affect my day to day for the rest of my life. I just kind of wanted to go and do my thing. And that can be true for a lot of us in this room. But as we see, the call of God to believers is that if he's going to be your Savior, he's going to be your Lord as well. That he is inviting you to relationship that you would be a follower of his, that you would serve him and live for him. Not just be saved by him, but, but for so much more. What is the first act of obedience that we would have as a Christian. I think it's to believe the gospel and to submit to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That's the first act for all of us. It's, it's to receive the gospel. Say, yes, I believe that you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. You are the, the promised Messiah from the Old Testament of the Jews and that you have come to save me from sin. You did live the perfect life. You died as, as a substitutionary atonement that, that is good for me you're sufficient and I give you my life I want to live for you we believe and then we submit so we were chosen by God for salvation to obey Jesus Christ of which the first is is our initial obedience but it doesn't just stop there it continues on even after we've accepted Jesus into our heart I mean this is again Bible Belt kind of thought we say man I'm going to accept Jesus into my heart and we could talk about that terminology if you want to and uh, all that stuff but at the end of the day think about it this way if you accepted Jesus into your heart that's awesome but you need to realize he didn't just come to, to get you into heaven Jesus came to be enthroned on your heart he came to sit on the throne of your life to be in charge, to lead you, to guide you. He's your good shepherd. We follow him the rest of our lives. We don't just accept it and walk away from it. We, we accept him and then say, have your way in me. I'm yours now forever. This is salvation. He came to set us free from sin, not so that we can now go do whatever we want without consequences, but so that we would live for him and serve him forever. But our salvation does not happen without the blood of Jesus. It doesn't happen without the blood of Jesus. Now, I know you read that, and you say, this is a little bit of a weird terminology for me. Sprinkled with the blood. <laughs> You're like, this is that Christianese stuff, and I don't know about that. Let me just, let me just explain it. Um, I know it sounds a little bit weird, But what Peter is doing here is pointing back to practices during the Old Testament sacrificial system under the law. He's pointing them back, which some of these readers may know, they might be Jews, but even the Gentiles, maybe they're kind of growing in their understanding of of the Old Testament and how God was working with his people in that time period. 
And, and so what we're going to do, I don't usually do this, but uh, we're going to go on a field trip all the way to Exodus, okay? We're going to go on a field trip. So if you have a Bible, turn it to Exodus. Uh, so this is Genesis, Exodus, the second book of your Bible, Exodus 24, all right? Um, as you're turning there, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a, of a spark notes of what's kind of going on. This is a monumental moment in Israel's history, okay? Uh, this is, they have been, uh, they have exited Egypt, all right? That's how I like to remember Exodus, because they've exited Egypt. And they've been wandering in the wilderness, so they're about to set up in the land of Canaan, the promised land. But before they do all of those things, God's got to set some things straight. God's saying, hey, I, I want to I wanna be your God, and I want you to be my people. But in order for us to do this, in order for you to live in relationship with me, it's got to go a certain way. And so God is teaching them how to live in relationship with him and how to live a lives that's holy and separate from the world, like Egypt, polytheistic Egypt that they came from. So God is reteaching them what life with him looks like. And so they have this whole Mount Sinai moment. You know, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and thunder's crashing and all the people are like, you can go by yourself, Moses, we'll stay here. You just, you just tell us what's going on afterwards. And so they have the 10 commandments and, and God is basically laying out all that he requires of his people if they're gonna live with him. If they're gonna be his people and they're gonna have his protection and his guidance and his provision in their life, he says, well, we gotta have some house rules, okay? If you're gonna live in my house, then you gotta live by my rules, says God. And so after they have this full experience, uh, Exodus 24 is the moment where Moses is gonna come down the mountain and he's going to communicate all of this to the people. And, and covenant is bigger than a contract. It's a little bit of a helpful term for us to understand where, where God is going to say, if, if, if we're going to do this together, you've got to live by these things. I'm going to be faithful to my end, but you've got to be faithful to your end. Now, what we know is that Israel was not faithful to their end, and God was faithful to punish them for that. Um, God is very faithful to his covenant even when we're not. Okay, but we, we come down the mountain, and now we pick up in verse 3 of uh, chapter 24. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord. And all the ordinances and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood, there it is again, and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. This is language Peter's pulling from. So Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So there's two things. There's a lot there, but there's two things I want you to focus on as it ties into what Peter is saying. The people of Israel could not enter into covenant with God without a total and full commitment to obey him. 
Notice how many times they say, we will obey all the things that are written in this covenant. Moses has to say it multiple times. It's like, remember, we're going to do this. We're going to live by this. And they're like, yeah, of course. We know they don't because they stink, but so do we. But there's a full commitment to obey. But first, they had to offer sacrifices and be sprinkled with blood. Why? The book of Hebrews is our greatest um, explanation of Old Testament law and how Jesus is the fulfillment of it. And there's one critical verse, Hebrews 9.22, that gives us great explanation to this. It says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So blood has to be spilled in order for sin to be forgiven. Well, why is that? Someone finish this sentence. For the wages of sin is death. If we are going to sin against the holy God, we're going to have to live or die with that consequence. Sin separates. Sin separates us from the holy God. It severs a relationship with him. For the wages of sin is death. When sin enters into the narrative, man's relationship with God is severed. It's fractured. The plug is pulled. Man is now dead in their sin. See the beginning of Ephesians 2. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It says, now we have no life with God because sin has entered into the narrative. Now, the blood of the covenant signifies the forgiveness and cleansing the people needed to stand in right relation to God. So before they could enter into this covenant, Israel and God, before they could do that, there had to be blood that was spilled. Because there was sin in their midst. And so they had to own up to that and say, hey, we've done wrong, and as a result, there has to be death. And so they would offer sacrifices and animals as substitutes so that they wouldn't take their own lives. And it was a continual reminder that sin costs everything. Sin takes life. It promises life, but it lies. It actually takes life. And this whole sacrificial system was a constant grave reminder of the penalty of sin. So they needed this blood to signify the forgiveness and cleansing. In fact, in, I think it's Leviticus 14, maybe Exodus 14, but I think it's Leviticus 14, there's a time where there's a leper in the camp and they sprinkle blood on him and it cleanses him. This is what their command to them is say, hey, if you have a leper, sprinkle blood on. It would cleanse. This is what the blood of the covenant does. So we see then that, that entrance into the covenant has two, that's one, two dimensions. The obedient response, we will obey all that the Lord has commanded us in the sprinkling of blood. This is Exodus 24. But then you go back to Peter, a Jew, 
He knows this. He's pulling from this. And then he talks about a new covenant, the the gospel that Jesus is the mediator of, knowing that the Old Testament covenant was a mere shadow of this new covenant, that all of us who have faith in Jesus are partakers in. Hebrews 10.4, it's not up here, but it simply says, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin for good. That's what the writer of Hebrews, and hey, you guys that love the Old Testament, you love the sacrificial system, all this stuff, you know the blood, the blood of, of bulls and goats could never take away sin for good, right? They were a temporary thing. They were a shadow of someone to come. Who is to come? Jesus. One of my favorite lines, I get goosebumps every time I think about it, is when Jesus is entering into his public ministry, he goes out there to the Jordan River, and John the Baptist is there. He's had his ministry. He is the forerunner, and he sees Jesus far off, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Whether John the Baptist realizes it or not, he's saying, that's the Lamb. And what's the Lamb going to do? Lay down his life so his blood would be spilled so that all that have faith in him can enter into covenant and relationship with God. Isn't that amazing? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Ephesians 1, 7. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our wrongdoings, according to the riches of his grace. Even later in 1 Peter, I think it's verse 18, ah, 17. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's works, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ see friends we have been bought at a price you have been ransomed meaning there was a a a debt that must be paid in order for you to walk free in, in order for us to have a relationship with God, we must be committed to obey. And we cannot have a relationship with God without the blood of Christ and our faith in that. And so if I were to ask you tonight, if you were to die, I'm not gonna kill you, but if you were to die <laughs> right now, you go to heaven well, maybe. Uh, but God says, hey, why should I let you in? Your answer matters. If your answer is, well, I've been good my whole life, most of my life, I'm pretty good. I'm not that bad, but I'm pretty good. Never done anything bad, bad. Better than that guy. <laughs> You're into a bad start, I'll tell you that much. And then you just start listing off your accomplishments. Can I tell you, that's not a good answer. It's not a good answer. The truth is, there's nothing but the blood of Jesus that will satisfy the wrath of God 
that is upon all those who have sinned against the holy God. And if your faith is not in him, if your trust and your hope is not in Christ and his work on your behalf, every other answer is bad. Every other answer is bad. And so to close, if tonight we can have a conversation with you and discuss these things and talk through what this looks like in your life, that maybe tonight is the night that you come to the grips that you need a savior. And we would love to chat with you about that. There's nothing, there's no special formula. There's no precise thing. It's like, well, I gotta say all of these words in order for it to be, it's not, it's not a Harry Potter spell, okay? <laughs> this is a genuine heart conversation where you surrender your life and you believe exactly what God has done. As simple as the ABCs, right? You admit that you're a sinner and you've fallen short of the glory of God. You believe that Christ is your savior, that he is God made flesh that died on your behalf so that you could have life with him and that as he was resurrected, he conquered sin and death for us. And see, you confess. You confess that he is Lord and savior and that you wanna live the rest of your life for him. It's as simple as the ABCs. We would love to walk with you through that and have those conversations. Or maybe you're one that has said, yeah, God's my savior, but I don't really know that he's been my Lord. I don't really know that maybe like the Israelites, I kind of started out strong and say, I will obey all the words of the Lord. But now you're in a camp where you're like, I will obey some of the words of the Lord. <laughs> Selective obedience is disobedience, okay? God wants all of us. So if you've accepted Christ into your heart, know that he wants to rule over Everything. There is not an aspect, a relationship in your life in which God does not seek to rule over it and have his way. And this is the invitation and the call. This is why I love Jesus as he goes throughout uh, his, his journey and he's calling disciples. And his call is he says, follow me, follow me, follow me. This is the invitation. It's not just accept this and go on with your life. It's saying redirect everything, put your faith in him, live for him forever. And so if that's you, if you say, if you say man, I, I, I need to change some things. I need to turn from things. I need to throw my, my, my business and my nets and all of this stuff because I've been chasing the things of this world. Man, we would love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you because God is altogether worth it for you. Father, how good you are, how kind you are just to lay out your word for us and that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, are intimately working in, in many, many ways to bring about our holiness, that we have been chosen by you before the foundation of the world that, that we can be adopted into your family, that we were guilty, sinful, Sinners that were deserving of wrath and, and yet you have justified us, that you have declared us righteousness not as a work that we have done but the work of Christ and Christ alone. So I pray for my friends in this room. Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of their hearts that they would see you, that you are altogether worthy of worship, that you are altogether good and that, that you're not gonna rip us off. 
that you're not a deceiver, that life with you, we're not gonna get to the end of our days in eternity and say, man, this was a regret. I wish I would have just chased pleasure in this life. God, would you help us see that your glory, your beauty, that we would behold you in your character and your righteousness and the ways that you've commanded us. And via that, we would be transformed one degree of glory by the next. More and more and more like you and that we would do that together with joy and praise to your name. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amazing grace.